I'm Mark Haywood, and this is Behind the Spine, a podcast which deconstructs genre and narrative and finds learning opportunities for writers in the most unlikely of places. When I came out, I had no idea what women did in bed at all. You don't get taught how to have sex. That's why I want to do a write about it, as frankly as I did. When we don't educate people on an issue, either because it feels uncomfortable or we aren't qualified to do so, or perhaps even because we simply don't want them involved in that activity, it often backfires. When the formal education system fails, people will often seek out answers from other sources. Despite our society's increasing liberalism, there are still glaring omissions in education, and young people are left with no choice but to go online for help. Our guest today is Kate Davies. In her book, In at the Deep End, she explores the story of a woman who comes out as a lesbian later in life, with no prior knowledge about same-sex relationships. Through the story, Kate touches on some incredibly salient points about love, lust and control. Chapter 1. Coming of Age In last week's episode... Disability awareness consultant Andrew Gerza told us how he was often asked to leave sex education lessons in school. He says it wasn't until much later in life that he realised he'd been asked to do so because the teachers didn't know how to talk to him about sex. They didn't and couldn't understand the needs of a disabled boy or how to educate him. But sex is such a big part of many people's lives that having a disability or a different sexual preference or even conforming to a different gender doesn't make that any less true. When education fails them, people will often try to teach themselves. But for same-sex couples, searching gay or lesbian is likely to bring up more in the way of pornography than anything else. And that's far from educational. I used to work as a commissioning editor in children's publishing, and we commissioned a book called Yay, You're Gay by a great YouTuber called Riyadh, Riyadh Khalaf. And he was talking about, particularly in his experience, but so many young gay boys, particularly gay guys, learn about sex from porn. I mean, probably all lot of young guys and probably girls as well are learning about sex from porn, which isn't real sex. Obviously, it's a performance. So I think a law was passed. Was it last year that they're going to introduce LGBT plus sex education in schools? I think. But I don't know what that's going to mean. But definitely, I don't think there's enough realistic kind of portrayal of queer sex. You're certainly unlikely to get some of the journey that Julia goes on fed back to you by a teacher. Um, And what I like about the honesty with which you approached the subject is that we're effectively learning as she is learning. And there's so much that she doesn't know. And one of the themes that comes up on this show more often than not is about being an expert, or if you're not an expert, learn to be an expert. And we go on this journey with her that starts with a broken penis and really unsatisfactory sex into some pretty hardcore uh, detail. But at no point does it feel gratuitous. It feels honest. And um, a few weeks back, we spoke to an intimacy coordinator, Ita O'Brien, about what writers can learn from this. And she said, you know, you need to be very explicit with a lowercase e. You need to be very clear about what's going on. You can't just say they have sex because an actor can't do anything with that and I guess it's the same for a reader you know what you're doing is you're not being provocative you're being factual and descriptive about what's going on that was a deliberate choice wasn't it 
A hundred percent, yes. Because, I mean, that is the journey that she goes on. It's a journey of sexual discovery. And so there's not really much point in writing about a journey of sexual discovery and awakening without right, without being specific. That That's how I felt about it. And I felt very much like the the relationships we have with those characters are expressed in the sex that they have, particularly with Sam, because sex is such a big part of that relationship. And the control that Sam holds over Julia is partly to do with sex as well so I wanted to be really specific so yes it was a hundred percent a kind of a choice that I made and funnily enough like I'd I'd seen um Lena Dunham who wrote Girls and performed in Girls in conversation with Catelyn Moran um when I was writing the book and she was talking about honesty and truth in writing and that's that's what I wanted to do I wanted to be really truthful in my portrayal of those sexual encounters because First of all, I didn't think I'd seen it enough of it. And secondly, because, I mean, when I first started writing it, I was I was quite, a, I started writing it as a screenplay in a screenwriting class quite soon after I'd come out. And I was really excited about sex because I'd never really, like, didn't know it could be so fun. And I kind of wanted to celebrate it. So it was both of those reasons, really. Very early on, the character talks about liking the idea of sex more than the actual act of of having sex and, and what starts with fairly innocent conversations between her and her female flatmate about what she can hear through the very thin wall very quickly escalates and i i read with you know increasing not trepidation but almost <laughs> a little bit of nervousness about i i would get so much from the chapter headings you know when you when you read a chapter heading that that says licking the snail you kind of know you're in for a bumpy ride right yeah Oh dear, yes. I have a friend who thought, a, a gay guy friend who read that and thought that that was like an accepted lesbian term for cunnilingus, which it's not, I just want to say. <laughs> I heard one on a train a while back, which was Finding Nemo, which I thought was just... <laughs> That's great. <laughs> you can use that if you, if you, if you want to. You, you mentioned control and it, it, you get the sense very early on that there is something about Sam and the relationship that these two characters have, which is pretty one-sided. It's it's a terribly toxic relationship, or, or at least becomes it. I I think, and I and I went back and reread some of the early sections once I'd gotten to the end, and you do lay that out. It is not. Uh, it's very authentic. You know the character that Sam um, reveals herself to be. It's all there from the very beginning, isn't it? That relationship that they have, or that control that she has over Julia. Yeah, definitely is. And I think that that is, but she sees it in a different way. Julia doesn't know what she's getting herself into because I think she she comes out and she's so new to being a lesbian that she kind of takes what she's given. So she throws all of the rules that she's that she's known out of the window and she thinks, oh, this must be how it is in lesbian relationships. And she also is lulled into a sort of false sense of security because she thinks that because she's now a lesbian she's going to have a really equal relationship and you know it's going to be an extremely feminist relationship and everything is going to be an equal partnership because they're both women because she's sort of opted out of the patriarchy and that isn't how it works because there are power dynamics in all relationships obviously um and that's definitely something that I think I assumed when I used to go out with men I, I think I was like oh well the patriarchy is the problem right and that isn't the case I mean, it is partly the case, but it's not, you're not naturally going to have an equal relationship just because you're going out with someone of the same sex. We did a lot of inner, inner monologue from Julia. She does comment a lot on 
things that are said to her by a woman and she reflects on the reaction that she would have had had it been a man that had said that to her. There's a, there's some really nice honesty in, in all of that. There were a couple of things that really, really stood out for me. Some of them thematic and some of them just tiny little throwaway touches like, you know, the name that you give the drag king, who is a character called Butch Cassidy. It's just, it's just wonderful. It reminded me of a few years ago, I was in Johannesburg and I was, I got taken to see a production of um, the Rocky Horror Picture Show. And the part of Frankenfurter was played by their leading drag act. Um, and his alter ego is a flight attendant. Uh, and it's a pun on Cathay Pacific. It's just, she's just called Cathy Specific, which is just, yeah, I just thought, but when I got to Butch Cassidy, I was like, that's perfect. That's really, really <laughs> nice. But in and amongst that, there are some really important themes. She has a very visceral reaction to the celebratory mood that her friends are in when this relationship goes south, doesn't she? Is that something that I don't think I've, I, I can't think of a relationship that I've been part of either as the friend or in the relationship where someone at some point hasn't says said, oh, she was never right for you anyway. That's, that's entirely, we do that all the time, don't we? All the time. And it's very difficult when you're in a relationship that isn't right for you to list, to hear that, isn't it? I mean, that's my experience. And I personal experience and sort of watching friends have relationships throughout the years is that you, as a friend, you can't be too critical of a relationship or that person might pull away. And particularly when someone's in a controlling relationship, other fr- people not being supportive of your relationship can isolate you even further. So I think that that's something that, I have experienced, I've seen friends go through it over and over and over again. And it is, it's hard to know what to do though, isn't it? It's hard to know what to do when you see someone in a controlling relationship because your sort of instinct is to try and help them get out of it. But in a way that won't necessarily work because that person has to be ready to hear it. Right. And I think there's something deeply disingenuous about after the fact saying she was never right for you anyway. It's like, well, why don't you tell me that before I got in too deep? You know, it would have been helpful two years ago, not uh, when we have to halve everything and, you know, get divorced or sell the house. It is. But at the same time, in the beginning, I think definitely in the book, Julia's in such a kind of honeymoon stage. She's like so caught up in the thrill of it that she couldn't have heard. She wouldn't have seen and she wouldn't have heard. And I think that's realistic to yeah how how relationships play out chapter two the villain in someone else's story it's tempting when we're writing about a minority to live within the confines of the stories we've told in the past it's why our guest professor vincent brown a few weeks ago told us that we need to rethink the way we tell stories of slaves or why andrew gerza says that films about disabled people often miss the mark But rethinking the narrative doesn't mean you can only ever write positively about a minority. Kate says that what's really important is honesty. I hope that we're at a place where we can represent all kinds of queer relationships and we don't have to sort of portray it as a... Not everything has to sort of have a happy ever after. So I think that when when you are a member of a minority writing about a minority, there's sometimes a kind of weight of expectation or pressure to represent the whole community or to represent the whole community in a great light. And I wanted to be more real than that. But at the same time, I didn't want to do, there's a kind of cliche that 
stories about queer people often end with people dying like you can't have a kind of happy story about queer people and I didn't want to do that either I wanted to show you know I didn't want to do a Chasing Amy you may have seen the film Chasing Amy uh, which I loved as a teenager and now like what she gets together with a man at the end you completely ruined the whole thing um Kissing Je Jessica Stein there's so many films where it's this great lesbian love story and then she gets together with a man at the end um I didn't want to do that obviously um I didn't want to portray the community in a negative light but at the same time I I hope there's space for realistic stories of abuse in queer relationships and not everything has to have a happy ending. It, I agree. And it's it's had a very supportive reaction from the community that you're writing about. A friend of mine is an actress who was in a, a theatrical adaptation of Sarah um, Waters' novel, The Night Watch, which is a series of lesbian relationships set during the Blitz. And they took that on national tour. And she said it was interesting to gauge the different reaction from town to town as to how a play predominantly about lesbian relationships went down. In some areas like Brighton, obviously it was champion and welcome with open arms. In other parts of the community, very much less so. Outside of LGBTQ, um, your readership, what's the reaction been like? Have you had some, oh my God, this is completely unacceptable reactions to the book? Yes, I think now, I mean, I am definitely not a writer that seeks out my reviews. <laughs> so I, I just don't think that's healthy. So I don't really, do, you know, I'll read them if it's in like The Guardian or so, you know, I'll read those reviews, but I'm not going to go and look on Amazon, for instance. But I do know that there are some people who, you know, it was out on NetGalley before it was published. And, you know, there was a one star review and it said, no, just no. <laughs> um, that's it, just no. Yeah, just no. You know, so yeah, it's not for it's not a book for everyone, but it has been. What's interesting is that HarperCollins is a mainstream publisher, and they've marketed it as mainstream fiction. And I'm not, I don't know if it's most of the readers, but probably most of the readers have been straight women, and they've loved it because it's not, it's not a, a story for lesbians. It's a story about, hopefully, quite a universal story in a way about about controlling relationships. And I've had lots of messages from almost exclusively women, but not in, not entirely, not always women, either women who've recently come out, but quite a lot of women of all sexual orientations who've been in controlling relationships and who have thanked me for writing about that. And that to me is really lovely. Yes, because the control is irrespective of sexuality, isn't it? it it's still a toxic relationship just because it's a lesbian one. That's, that's kind of irrelevant. It, it made me think of... Um, Big Little Lies, the TV show um, that was an adaptation of a, of a novel. They moved it from Australia, I think, to uh, to Monterey. And then Nicole Kidman character, and we've talked about this on this show before, about how she is in a deeply controlling, a very sexually aggressive relationship with her husband. And there is a sense, a glimpse that part of her likes it. And she deals with that horrific realization or self-realization. It's kind of a, what you're doing here seems to me to be flipping the narrative of, of, of a coming of age story for the want of a, a better word. She comes to this as, as you did later in life than a lot of the stories that we hear about. I know it's more common now to come out later, but if you think about those traditional, you know, coming out, it was like, you know, you may be in your early 20s when you finally confront this. It came later for you, didn't it? Yeah, I was I was in my mid 20s. I, I came out at, pro, at secondary school. Um, as bisexual and in fact I think I probably came out as lesbian at some point and then just sort of went in again because it was quite stressful and I didn't really know what to do about it and so I kind of forgot about it really but then I made a new year's resolution actually when I was 25 I think I was 25 to not go out with men anymore so I obviously knew that I wasn't straight but I knew I wasn't going to do anything about it unless I took some sort of action so that was the action that I took and I never looked back. 
I think the decision to market it as a mainstream book is absolutely appropriate because of what it becomes as a as a narrative. I want to spend some time thinking about one particular aspect of the book, which is it's very much from her perspective. It's her journey, and we uh, are effectively her as she learns um, all of this brave new world for her. But towards the end, you do a very brave thing that I don't think I think a lot of writers could learn from this. You flip the perspective and she tries to imagine the entire thing from Sam's perspective. And there's a great, I can't remember the exact line, but she talks about being, is it the the bad guy or the... Or yeah, the, the villain of someone else's story. The villain in someone else's story. Thank you. And, and that made me think of so many things about you're actually taking what is a first person narrative and, and then trying to flip that. So she tries to imagine whether life would have been different or imagine it from... Sam's perspective that was a real gear shift for me that has that had a reaction from your readers um yes I have I've had lots and lots of people comment specifically about that line of that section of the book and for me it was really important because it is a subjective story and I think that some readers who are again I don't read their reviews but I, I'm absolutely certain that there are some re- readers particularly in the kinky the kink community or the um poly polyamorous community who might see this as a kind of anti-kink, anti-polyamory tract, and it is not at all. It is, you know, I, I kind of was quite careful, hopefully, to put in characters who, positive characters who are in those communities in this book as well. But I I wanted to make it clear that this is one character's perspective, and it's one character's journey. And people who are in controlling relationships, the controlling partner doesn't think that they're a bad person. The controlling partner is doing what they need to do, I think, to get through life. And they don't realise that the, the I don't think often that people realize the impact they're having on their partner and I and so it was important for me to think about that and for have to have Julia think about that and to make the reader think about that because it's it's a one side a first person novel is a one-sided story so I'm I, I'm sure that you know I've been in controlling relationships in my life several and I've had controlling dynamics in a, in the workplace but I'm sure if we heard those stories from you know my bosses my ex-boyfriend's points of view it would be a very different story. Mm. And this, you know, you file it under everybody's fighting a battle we know nothing about, don't you? You know, unless you unpick that, it can be very difficult. Um, thinking with what you said about the the king or polyamorous community, there is a certain, I mean, control and sex of this type. It goes hand in hand, doesn't it? Because um, that is part of the appeal in that you are potentially giving up control. That's some. That's often the the attraction. So it's a very layered discussion about control, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It's part. It's exactly that's what attracts people to kinky sex is is that that power dynamic that you can play out safely, um, and then hopefully not play it out in your real life. And just because something is a sexual fantasy doesn't mean that's how you want to live your whole life as a kind of submissive wife or something. But at the same time, if you're in a you know, for Julia, she's a new, she's newly out. She's quite innocent in a way. And this kind of glamorous woman who should do anything to keep wants to do this with her. So although she consents to it, can can she fully consent to it? You know, because because of the power relationship in, in that relationship outside sex isn't equal. Even though someone is consenting to what's happening, they might not really want to do it. And I think that is quite common. I mean, we've seen I May Destroy You. I don't know if you've seen that. It's absolutely amazing. Michaela told me show. And I think that all this stuff, all these conversations about sex and consent are so complicated. And there is no, there isn't really a right or wrong. It's so much more subtle than that. Chapter three, 
in at the deep end. Often, when we're forced to face the reality of our actions or of the events unfolding in our lives, it can hit us like a truck. It's very rare we are ever eased into the biggest, most life-changing moments of our lives, but hopefully we're at least prepared for them. The story of Julia shows how you can become tangled up in the unexpected when you've not been properly prepared for what might come and how difficult that can be to figure everything out on your own. And it's quite the journey. Julia goes from first kiss with girl to visit to sex shop to visiting a sex club and it all happens rather fast. She just literally just goes all in and I think that that can happen. I think, did it happen to me? It did happen to me quite like that. So, you know, once you're in the community, if you're going out with someone who's more experienced than you, or um, I, I call the character of um, Sam an advanced lesbian, and Julia is like a beginner lesbian. She's just kind of right in there doing everything and loving it. And it's, it's, it's a whole new world. And so, yeah, she doesn't have time to catch her breath. She doesn't start out as like, you know, if you come out at sort of 15 or 16, you might have a kind of teen relationship, which is much more vanilla. She doesn't have any of that. She goes straight in with some quite hardcore action. Well, we love we love reading or watching characters who make decisions we disagree with. And, and there were times when I was going, girl, just maybe stay in tonight, you know, don't, don't go to that club. <laughs> um, I mentioned earlier the guy I spoke to who is a disability um, consultant, and he talked about his own need for intimacy and he said something really interesting he said it was so much more than the physical act it was almost a way of him feeling normal that he was able to or he was uh, he had the ability and the permission to experience things that able-bodied people have there's a real shift in julia isn't there where she has that first um deeply sexual encounter with sam she experiences something that she has never experienced before and there's a lot of detail about that 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 really is the moment at which she experiences meaning and truth and, and who she really is for the first time. It's a very, very visceral and very incredibly visually described scene. She effectively experiences utter joy and ecstasy for the very first time. Yeah. She feels joy and ecstasy and a sense of rightness, I think, because she feels like, oh, I'm not, she'd always felt like she was wrong or that why didn't she enjoy sex? She didn't really feel attractive. She felt she didn't get the point of it so she was sort of living outside this you know everyone's like oh yeah sex is great but and she, she'd always been feeling like it's not that great I don't know what everyone's going on about it all the time and suddenly she gets the point and she feels like she's come home and I think a lot of people feel like that when they come out when they realize this is what's been going on for me and I wanted to capture that like, like a lot of coming out stories are about the problem you know the this often it's extremely traumatic people are rejected by their families you know about the struggle of coming out and I wanted to write about the absolute joy that you feel when you figure out who you are and especially you know I live I'm a white cis woman living in London in 2020 and therefore being queer is a joyful thing um for me and I wanted to capture that in the novel. Is there a sense that one of the early characters that we meet Alice the flatmate um, has a fairly active sex life um, early doors with her boyfriend. Um, there is a sense, it's not really touched on that much, but there's a sense that Alice begins to grow in some way resentful of um, this new experience that's been having because it makes her conventional relationship with her boyfriend almost almost a little boring, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. Yeah, she feels like she's quite parochial and that um, 
Julia is having a much more exciting life than her and it's making it makes her question her sort of trad setup I think and there's a plot a plot line in the novel about her her boyfriend proposes to her and she feels very torn by this because and I think a lot of women of my generation younger are having this conversation about do we want to get married will that trap us you know and so she's kind of struggling with those questions that that feminist women are struggling with and then her best friend is having this like delightful non-traditional experience and I think they both in the beginning think oh you know Julia's so lucky she's opted out of the patriarchy like I said earlier um you know she's not going to have any of these struggles because she's with a woman and obviously that isn't how things are. You mentioned earlier that you you started writing it as a screenplay and it's obviously become a novel. How much did it change from initial idea of the story to what to what is actually in the book? It changed quite, I mean, a huge amount because I started writing it a really long time ago. I didn't really, it was the first thing I'd properly written. I mean, I'd written children's books, but I hadn't written anything for adults before. Um, this is certainly not a children's book. Definitely not a children's book. The overall structure, the kind of three-act structure is sort of the same, but when when I was first writing it, it wasn't about an abusive relationship. I was writing it about like it was a funny romantic comedy, you know, with some with some sex clubs in it. And then I I wrote it. I kind of did never actually wrote it as a screenplay. I structured it as a screenplay. Wrote a bit of it, and then I wrote it as a very Bridget Jones style, funny broad uh, diary. So really, frankly, uh, you know, plagiarizing Bridget Jones there. Um, and then then I did, I kind of thought it was fine, but it was too light and it didn't feel truthful. And that's when I went to see Lena Dunham speaking to Catelyn Moran. And I think it was around that time that shows, you know, television was becoming more, re- you know, honest and authentic. And I, and, I, and I decided to rewrite the whole thing as honestly as I could. And when I rewrote it at that point, it was, I, I stripped out a lot of characters and it was really just about Julia and Sam and Alice and Dave were in it and there were, you know, one person at work. Um, but it was it was kind of it was a much more serious novel. The beginning was very funny because that was sort of from my earlier drafts and the end was extremely dark and bleak. And when I went out and so it was about 70,000 words, I think, when I went out to agents and my agent said, you need to <laughs> you need to lighten it up a bit. So I added in a, a lot of subplots at that stage after I got my agent to lighten the novel because I wanted it to be warm as well as honest. What's coming up for you uh, next? What are you working on at the moment, Kate? Well, I've just finished a draft of my second novel. Hooray! It's taken me a lot. Well, it's taken me nearly two years. This this first novel took me, you know, I'm embarrassingly long, like many, eight years or something. So yeah, nearly two years, but I'm now a full-time writer, so I feel like I should have been more speedy. So yeah, so that is a novel about donor conception and the different ways that people become parents and the kind of impact that donor conception has on children, as well as the parents who choose to use a donor. Because I'm donor conceived myself, and I'm also a lesbian thinking about having children. So I wanted to look at it from both angles. And In at the Deep End has been optioned for TV, which is very cool. So I'm really hoping that will happen at some point. And I'm also kind of new to screenwriting, but doing some screenwriting. So I'm working on a really fun Cartoon Network children's series about a medieval deer. So good. And it's just really fun to do that alongside writing, you know, quite a sort of per- personal, serious novel for adults. Um, it's really fun to write about medieval deers and doing jokes about Lord of the Rings. So, yeah, a bit of both. Excellent. Excellent. <laughs> we'll talk about with that. And, and the d- thrilling news about 
the TV option. It is written in such a visual style that it does lend itself perfectly to the screen. And just the ability to see some of the things that you've written about is, you know, you would you would get people watching, but you know, behind. Yeah. <laughs> it might be. It'd be fun to have a go and see if it will work. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, on that note, Kate Davies, thank you very much for being a guest. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. Conclusion. Massive thank you then to Kate Davies for joining me on the podcast. And to recap, what have we learned? When you're writing about a minority group, or anyone for that matter, doing right by them doesn't mean you can only ever write positive stories. It means being honest and truthful, reflecting on a broad cross-section of experiences in a realistic way. With that in mind, your story's protagonist might be from a minority group. You shouldn't lean on that at every available moment. Don't make that your only hook. Kate's book is less about a woman discovering her sexuality and more about how that woman navigates the unexpected and how she copes with the stranglehold of a controlling relationship. The relationship just happens to be with another woman. Kate cleverly flips perspectives in her book. She allows the reader to see things from the villain's perspective. Perhaps you could go further write two separate storylines which mirror the same narrative but come at it from different perspectives. It may offer your readers an insight into how our definition of right and wrong is skewed by personal experiences. And finally, if you're overly critical of a friend's relationship with someone else, even a bad and toxic one, they may pull away from you even further. Always aim to nurture, encourage and inspire. That's the sign of real strength. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Haywood. And if you'd like to get in touch, we're on Twitter and Facebook as at Behind the Spine. New episodes are released weekly. Please like us and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really does help. Up next week, I'll be in conversation with Lara Maitland, author of the Sunday Times bestseller, Mudlarking. When you find something on the foreshore, you're very aware that you're the first person to touch it since the original owner. And some things you pick up and they, they just feel, they just feel like they have a past. Goodbye for now. Stay safe and keep writing.